Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. I'll be your host for this week's episode. Today we have a special interview with filmmakers, investigative journalists, and authors John Duffy and Ray Novoshelsky. I first heard of John and Ray back in 2006 when they released their documentary film 9-11 Press for Truth, a documentary film based partly off the work of Paul Thompson and the story of the Jersey Widows. Some years later, John and Ray conducted a shocking and revealing interview with former terrorism czar Richard Clark, who named the head of the CIA's Alex Station bin Laden unit, Rich Blee, as someone primarily responsible for blocking vital information that could have prevented the 9-11 attacks. Clark later alleges that the decision to block the information must have been authorized by CIA Director George Tennant himself. They later released an audio documentary based on this interview called Who is Rich Blee, which chronicles the entire story in great detail. John and Ray also have a brand new book out, building on these previous works titled The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, which is why I'm having them on the podcast today. I incorrectly say that the book comes out right after this podcast. However, we got a little behind on the release date of the podcast, so just to clarify, the book is already out and available for purchase. Thank you for joining me today, Ray and John. I'm extremely excited to have you guys on the podcast finally. Um, I have been a big fan of both of your work for quite a while. It's sort of shaped my worldview and has been a big influence on the work that I do. So your book is coming out on August 28th, a little bit after this podcast is released. And your new book is called The Watchdogs Didn't Bark. It's one of the most riveting narratives I've read so far about essentially the malfeasance and quote-unquote incompetence of some of the federal agencies that were supposed to prevent things like terrorist attacks. It's truly fascinating what you guys have done, because some of these narratives that you're laying out in your book, I've read in bits and pieces in other books and stories. Um, one of them that comes to mind is Kevin Fenton's Disconnecting the Dots. But, and you know, another one, of course, is some of your own previous work, um, like the Who is Rich Blee uh, audio documentary that you guys did. I, I call it an audio documentary because calling it a podcast, I think, is not doing it justice. It might as well be a film. That's how well done it is. And It was supposed as, to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, it works as a, I mean, as an audio only, it's beautifully done. And I think that it's not, it's in a different class than most podcasts that you'll hear. I recommend anybody listening to check out Ray and John's previous work, Who is Rich Blee? Uh, their interview with Richard Clark. And does that actually have a specific title? Like, what is that title on YouTube? Uh, yeah, is that called Who is Rich Blee? Like, is uh, probably like 30 copies of it, so it's got a lot of different titles. The one that we put up is called uh, Interview Number 007, Washington, D.C. So maybe, uh, maybe we had some bad metadata in there. Maybe that's why so many other people felt the need it, to uh, put up more <laughs> copies. The full podcast is is Who is Rich Blee? And that was like a two-part, uh, so what, I think it came to like two-hour, like you're saying, like audio documentary. What's on YouTube is there's like a 10-minute just straight-up interview that we did with Richard Clark that we cut in other footage and uh, still photographs and stuff to sort of make like a short. So that's like a visual short, and it's about 10 minutes long, and it gives you sort of like the nuts and bolts of some things. The 
uh, the podcast Who Is Rich Blee is much longer, uh, more detailed, and that actually really sets the stage for the book. So if you were to go and download the Who Is Rich Blee podcast, that audio documentary, watch that, and then read the book, you'd have a good jumping off point for the book. Because um, some of the, you know, that's sort of the point where our research was really starting, like leading up to us creating that, and then it went further and beyond. And you mentioned it was, uh, well, Duffy joked it was supposed to be a movie. Uh, that, that's true. And, uh, you know, when we, we weren't, you, you're talking about a podcast versus audio documentary. We weren't sure even what to call it at the time. And, uh, and since then, uh, you know, like serial kind of came out and like blew the water out of that space for interest in like true crime podcast. And, uh, uh, I guess at the time we were working on something that was kind of like a national security war on terror, true crime podcast uh and i still think it's funny that one of the only people to report on it at the time uh john cook over at gawker uh, had to put put the term in parentheses investigative podcast like we were making it up so. <laughs> <laughs> so so just going back to that really quickly so john cook of gawker was he the only mainstream ish journalist that that reported on this when it came out or were there others that directly referenced your video and, and was, did, did any of those reports make it into places like the Washington post or New York times or anything like that? No. Uh, well, n- none of the print stuff. It definitely didn't make it into the print stuff, but the timeline is that we put out the, the 10 minute Richard Clark, uh, YouTube video that John Duffy was talking about there, um, in August of 2011. And we worked with, uh, Phil Shannon at the daily beast, and Jason Leopold, who was then at Truthout, um, with stories that sort of appeared at the same time as we released the YouTube video in order to kind of like give it a big splash. And in the process of, we sort of released that to promote the podcast that we knew that was coming and also to, you know, quote unquote, shake the trees to try to finally get a response from the CIA, which as the book details, we certainly got. Uh, but the initial response, we got one from uh, George Tenet that we, that we then posted. Um, and so that original one, because it came out in the Daily Beast especially, we did get calls from uh, like WashingtonPost.com, did a little story on it. Daily Beast did a follow-up story by Anthony Summers. Um, it got a decent amount of traction in that first, in that like month there of August. But the podcast, which was sort of accompanied by uh, a threat from CIA not to put out the podcast the way we had it, uh, we had tried to sort of like we, we put out a, a little press release on our website letting everyone know we had delayed the podcast from what was supposed to be the 10th anniversary of 9-11 and it ended up uh, not getting released until I think it was September 21st or 22nd, 23rd. Uh, in the meantime, the amount of coverage in terms of mainstream that the CIA threat story and the podcast itself got, um, to my knowledge, the only thing we got was the John Cook article at Gawker which did get a good amount of attention. And then uh, we ourselves, along with a journalist named Rory O'Connor, uh, wrote a piece for Salon that kind of explained what had happened uh, that came out like in October of 2011. But no, the mainstream never really got to this story. And which is noteworthy in and of itself because Richard Clark was widely ex- sort of embraced by the mainstream at a certain point um, after he came out during the 9-11 commission hearings and said, you know, I'm sorry, we failed you. He was, uh, wouldn't necessarily describe him as a whistleblower per se at the time, but he was one of the only people who seemingly was telling the truth during the 9-11 commission hearings. 
and in a shocking way that got the media's attention. But yeah, the great uh, Hulu series just now, uh, the looming tower, uh, season one from, uh, Alex Gibney and, um, Lawrence Wright, uh, they, you know, he's, uh, I can't remember the actor who plays him, but it's a serious, good, strong actor, and uh, he's a major character in that in that series, season one as well. He's always a guy who can get attention, you know. I mean, one of the interesting things you talk about in your book is how, for some reason or another, after your interview with him, where he was extremely candid, and I'm going to get to that the content of that interview in a second, but after that interview, he, for some reason or another, just didn't feel like he needed to clarify or follow up in media that he sort of stayed silent and just let that interview stand on its own. Um, is that correct? Yeah. And that was actually really interesting because, you know, when we, we did the interview and we, and we had cut it up and it took us a while from the point where we had the interview sort of in the can to the point where we released it. It was about like two years and we had gone back to him. And before we released the video online, we were like, Hey, this is what we've done with it. We want you to watch it first. We're giving you an opportunity to walk any of this back, you know, and uh, and he watched the video we made. He said, nope, no edits. And, that, you know, just very concisely. And then uh, we put that out uh, in, into the public and we released the podcast and all that. And then post that point, um, you know, there was a joint statement released by some high officials at the CIA, including uh, George Tenet, Richard Blee, Kofor Black, and they basically kind of say, you know, Clark was a, an amicable public servant, um, but he's totally without foundation right here with all this stuff he's saying. We don't know why he's saying it. Um, but even after that, he Clark never recanted anything. He never changed anything. He just sort of maintained a radio silence and let, let, let what he said stand. And when was this actual interview? What was the date it was conducted? Uh, it was October. October of 2009. 2009. So it was already when Richard Clark was sort of, I think he was, uh, was he in an unofficial or official capacity advising the Obama administration on matters of national security? I think he can, maybe it was just a few meetings he had with Obama. Yeah, I'm not sure that he was ever, I mean, there was a point then when uh, years later when the Snowden revelations came out that they uh, convened, you know, I guess like kind of an internal commission to, uh, to look at uh, what to do about those allegations, and uh, he was part of that. So I know he advised in that way at that time, but, but it's okay, not clear. Okay. He had just released a book, though, like the year before called uh, Your Government Failed You, and his first book had been like this huge bestseller, uh, Against All Enemies, um, but the 2008 book hadn't gotten nearly as much attention, and that book actually was the first time he went into this stuff at least in written form that he went into with us in the interview. Um, and because we had read that, we'd always intended to get in touch with him, but because we'd read that, we thought um, maybe there was a chance he might be willing to kind of go there in greater detail with us. Um, and it's funny because the initial letter that uh, John just referenced um, that came from George Tenet and others that were kind of saying, I don't know why he's saying all this, but it's, you know, uh, that letter was uh, originally, in its original form, said that he had come out of nowhere without any prior, you know, allusion to any of this and was now saying it to us. And that, in fact, wasn't true. And the funny thing was I sent them an email back to Bill Harlow, George Tenet's rep, and I pointed that out along with a number of other things in an attempt to get them to sit down and interview with us and go on the record about what was wrong and what was right about what Clark had said. 
And, uh, and it's, it's funny because when we were working with Phil Shannon at the Daily Beast, he felt the need to do his own due diligence as a journalist and go directly to them to get uh, their response letter rather than use the one they'd given us. And they took the notes we had put to them in the email and while refusing to ever interview with us, adjusted the language of their, their letter uh, to take like that <laughs> assertion out, for instance. Wait, just go back for a second. What, th- so they, they sent a different response letter to Phil Shannon? A slightly adjusted response letter that clearly was taking the notes that we had given them. And, and I guess they thought we had a few good points. And one of those points was that they wow. hadn't realized that Richard Clark had previously talked about this in his book. So that was one of the points they were using to kind of say this guy's full of it, is that, yeah. uh, well, I, I comes out with this out of nowhere after never mentioning it. And then we had to say, well, except if you read his book from, you know, from 2008, and he gives an entire portion of a chapter to this. Interesting. I, I, I must, maybe that was, was that actually in your book? I don't remember. No, that, we don't that's... mention that. There's a lot we didn't end up. There's a lot that made the cutting room floor on that book. But, uh, the, but Clark's little section of his, uh, of his book that goes into it, he titles straining credulity, uh, when talking about this particular story. And the particular story we're talking about is what Richard Clark reveals in that sit-down interview um, that you guys conducted with him. I just wanted to go back just again to that interview. It was very groundbreaking in several ways. I mean, first it opened the door for even more differing narratives from some of the most important whistleblowers in the war on terror. Secondly, it largely confirmed something Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it seemed to confirm something you guys had been working on, but had not had confirmed before by an official, that the CIA knew of the existence of two of the 9-11 hijackers operating in the United States in the country for 12 months before 9-11, even though they only told the FBI and Clark after 9-11. Did I get any of that wrong? Is that actually what happened? No, that's that's quite correct. Um, And it was... It was funny because, yes, this is 2009, you know, so this story's developed a lot over time. But at the time when we're sitting down with Clark, we think we have to sort of slow roll him, you know, that we got to like, we were trying to like <laughs> pin down a few questions about specific meetings on specific dates. And we were just like, so at this meeting, did they mention these people? Okay. So at this meeting, did they, and, he, and then finally after a couple of those, and we were trying to like build to a grander narrative to finally like maybe like crack the nut. And he, and he was just like, guys, listen, it, you can't expect me to remember the dates. You know, it was almost a decade ago at that time. But he was like, if it ever involved me, they never mentioned these two guys. And then he just went on and opened. And he just, I mean, he floored us because he just started saying like, if there was any point where he was in the room with the heads of Alex Station, uh, George Tenet at the CIA, Kofor uh, Black, head of counterterror, any time they had to sit down there, uh, even though they were screaming that they're, you know, a big attack is coming and they're trying to give their starkest warning yet, that they never mentioned these two individuals, Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf Al-Hazmi being in the country. And then, so we, yeah, we thought we might have to try to like, <laughs> like out savvy him somehow. And he just like stopped us short and then just like, he just fucking took it to the hole. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, it's so fascinating because what you guys were expecting, it sounds like was maybe like, yeah, at this meeting, they didn't bring it up. And, oh, actually they did bring it up at this other meeting. But instead what he did was say that, unequivocally that it was never brought up to him ever in any of the meetings 
which is something that I'm assuming you guys didn't expect to hear from him. Well, he takes it for, and then he takes it further. I mean, he says never to him or his staff. And then he, he, what we, you'll see in that 10 minute interview is he lays out very uh, unequivocally that he, every day when he flicked on his computer, he had just a, a list of CIA reports on his, on his desktop or whatever. And he basically states that in order for him to not have not received the cable traffic regarding uh, these two people's entry into the United States and their you know possession of a visa and that sort of thing, he would have had to have been intentionally taken out of the loop. Someone would have had to have intervened to prevent him from getting that information. And we go on, he says it would have been a high-level decision. We go on to ask, well, how, how high-level? And he says he would think it would have had to have been the director, meaning George Tenet. So, I mean, he was just dropping bombs for us. And that's something that he's never said, he never said on record before. No. And he he very clearly states that he's like, I'm moving into the realm of sort of, uh, he calls it, um, what, uh, conjecture and hypothesis he's he's you know he's 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 not trying to say like i can definitively prove these things but he has a series of facts as he says that he can't make sense of otherwise yeah and and actually he he goes into that before he lays out his theory as to what might be the reason for this which is where it becomes you know it, it could become a he said she said but as far as prior to that moment before we stepped into hypothesis and conjecture he was crystal clear on the fact that there was uh, a sharing mechanism between CIA and his office at the Clinton and then Bush White Houses, um, that he was charged with counterterror, that he had a strong relationship with George Tenet, the CIA director, that Tenet was very closely in the weeds on counterterror stuff, uh, you know, uh, within those uh, sort of lower offices known as uh, CTC and Alex Station. So there was no lack of information sharing between them and George Tenet, and there also was no lack of information sharing between George Tenet and himself, who he had considered a, a good friend, um, and that they had about, I think the quote was, uh, about every other day, a daily threat meeting. There was a threat matrix. In other words, there were a lot of ways to get pertinent information to him. So what he knew for a fact was or that he would state unequivocally was that it never got to him and he didn't believe it had ever gotten to either of those two White Houses, that it had gotten as high, he believed, as George Tenet at the top of the CIA, and that was where it stopped. And because he had received so much information on so many other terror-related warnings, something about the fact that only the info about these two future hijackers arriving in the United States seemed to be the, the only thing, right? that got withheld. And so, again, he says, now the question is, why? And I just want to be clear, Robbie, before we go on, and I'm sure you'll get there, I don't consider us conspiracy theorists, and some of the answers to why may surprise your audience. So. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I guess what we're talking about now is more in the realm of conspiracy fact, because, I mean, Richard Clark himself says that I believe for the longest time that this was probably one or two low-level CIA people who made the decision not to disseminate the information. Now that I know that 50 CIA officers knew this, and they included all sorts of people who were regularly talking to me, yeah, saying I'm pissed doesn't begin to describe it. So what Richard Clark is describing is, in, in a sense, a conspiracy to hide information potentially by up to 50 CIA agents 
And that's a lot of people. We always hear this mantra that a conspiracy breaks down once a certain amount of people are quote unquote in on it. But this appears to be at best a whole department of the CIA hiding information from the people who should have been made privy to it. Do you think that's fair to say? I think there's probably a little bit more nuance to it than that. Um, Those 50 people, I think that's a reference to how many eyes passed over certain CIA cable traffic that came through Alex Station mentioning Almidar's visa, mentioning Almidar and uh, Al-Hazmi's presence at the Malaysia Planning Summit, and then mentioning their travel to the United States. So how many they can track who accessed what cable. And later, when the inspector general went in to investigate this, they could see who accessed what cable when, right? Their computers track that. So when Clark sees that, he can see r- these roughly 50 people have access to this, what have you. Um, Got it. Now, are all those 50 people actively, day by day, working on this case or hiding this from the FBI or hiding this from the White House? Probably not. It's probably smaller than that. And in fact, as our, our story goes into and you know how it comes out of footnote 44 out of the, uh, out of the commission report, um, basically, an internal cable went around through... Alex Station, uh, basically saying this information has been shared with the FBI. So there's probably a handful of people who are involved in making, keeping it a quote unquote close hold, keeping this information in house. Um, but some of those people who probably their eyes passed over this, who it's not, it's not their ticket, it's not their focus. Like people have uh, an assignment to different areas of the world and, you know, different things to focus on, what have you. So not, so some of them probably just thought, Oh, yep, that went over and it's not my business anyway. So I'm moving on with the rest of my desk work, whatever. So I wouldn't say that there's necessarily this cabal of 50 people who schemed this for a year, but probably a smaller handful there, but you could expand that. And, uh, as you go later into our book, you see that there must've been some sort of work at the NSA to conceal this information as well. But one thing yeah, is, yeah, while, and, while it's difficult oh, sorry, to know who accessed what and kind of like what level of information that they had at a given time and what they made of it, uh, one thing we can know for sure is the very first investigation into where the failures had occurred uh, that took place in 2002 by the Congressional Intelligence Committees, um, they were aware, they had become aware of, of two cables that made it look pretty bad for the CIA that had come over in early 2000, alluding to one of those two hijackers traveled to Los Angeles. And the question became, well, if this came into Alex Station, your counterterror office, uh, your bin Laden office, then like, why was this not shared with the FBI at that time? What? Why didn't basically why didn't you kind of make the sort of reaction that everyone would have expected, which is, whoa, the United States, L.A., this guy, he just went to a terror summit. Like, let's put him on a watch list. Let's find out what's going on. Let's let John O'Neill, the FBI, know. And the answer that George Tenet gave unequivocally at that time was nobody read it. It was information only and nobody read that cable in that March time frame. And, you know, the um, congressman who was questioning him seems like he was really taken aback by that and was trying to make that make sense in his mind and kind of said, so, so the, you know, so these guys leave a terrorist meeting. One of them flies to America message comes into your office saying he's arrived in the U S no one in your office reads it. In other words, that's almost as bad. Right. But tenant doesn't blink. And he says, that's right. I know that nobody read it uh, in that time frame." And so the inspector general's report of his own CIA, which Clark 
was aware of because an executive summary had come out listing those 50 to 60 people, but nobody had been able to read up to the time we interviewed him. That that realization that Tenet had his friend had flat out lied to Congress in that moment and that there's no way the CIA director hadn't gone back and looked and didn't know that 50 to 60 people had accessed one of those cables, that became the moment that changed how he looked at his old friend, George Tenet. And what you're ref- referencing is the Joint Congressional Inquiry into 9-11, right? Correct. Um, if I, and if I could just backtrack real quick, um, that, that March cable that George Tenet is saying, like, without a doubt, nobody read, it wasn't just like a random thing that got emailed in from the outside. It was a response to a request that they had sent out. Like, a, 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 like they had sent out something based on earlier cable traffic trying to figure out, like, what was going on with Amidar and al-Hazmi. And the, the March 5 cable that comes back to them is an answer from their overseas station. So it, this idea that, like, they sent out a request for information and then when the answer came, none of them read it, I mean, it's, it's patently absurd. Well, yeah, I mean, what you're describing sounds like a coordinated effort by some of these people, and we'll go into some of the specific people in more detail, to, to lie about this because it looks so bad. Um, well, and if I may at this point, um, I just want to sort of make clear in case some of your listeners start tuning out at this point because they say, well, sounds like they're talking about 9-11 and I'm not really interested in 9-11. The book itself starts with some intriguing things that, you know, uh, uh, that Richard Clark told us as sort of a jumping off point. So you mentioned, wow, 50 to 60 people at CIA, that's like a whole office. Well, we had the same thought. So between the interview with Richard Clark in 2009 and when we released that Who Is Rich Plea podcast in 2011, we started asking around to people who might know, to people who were in the inside, and we started to put, you know, it's one thing to say 50 to 60 people. Like, who are these characters? When did they arrive? What are they all about? You know, and so we started pulling some of that out and we became aware of a few people that hadn't ever really been named before. We found out more about this guy who at one time had been in charge of the office named Rich Belie. The main thing was we kept hearing about this woman who supposedly had red hair or they call her the redhead auburn haired uh, woman who had not only been that was sort of the first thing the first failure she was tied to, but it turned out throughout the war on terror, she'd been alleged to have been tied to a lot more, and her name was Alfreda Bukowski, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so by 2011, we, and we can get into this, got into a little trouble. We, we tried to do our due diligence and get a response from the CIA about some of this that we'd unearthed, and, and we're asking for interviews with Alfreda Bukowski and some of these other people. Well, they didn't like that we were going to name these people for the first time, in, you know, and put that out into the media. And the book, um, what happened was I mentioned, we mentioned that uh, Inspector General's report. After the podcast came out in 2011, uh, between then, uh, in the year 2015, 10 years after it had first been hidden from the public, after it had been classified, Jason Leopold, uh, who some people might know, has been uh, self-describes as a quote-unquote FOIA terrorist. He uses the Freedom of Information Act to just, you know, uh, put fear into the hearts of government officials who might be trying to keep documents under wraps. And uh, he managed to get that in 2015. And using that and and, uh, and a lot of new interviews, uh, we were able to put together this story of the people that were at the heart of not only this failure, but many failures in the war on terror, and sort of track their careers from when they enter 
um, some of these, you know, uh, intelligence agencies in the late 80s and, and the narrative runs through to 2015 and we get to kind of see who, who rises and who falls and what some of putting that under a microscope maybe tells us about how the system itself works. Like Ray's saying, what we, we didn't want this to just be another 9-11 book and we didn't even want it to just be another national security book. I think we really try to make this a book about systems big systems and how they how they can do things that uh like these big state systems that can do things that are seemingly like illegal or going against what are the supposed values of the nation and all the and how this can kind of happen over and over and over again and how the people who apparently when you start really looking at them look like they've done a lot of bad stuff keep getting to be successful and promoted and the people who finally get a conscience and try to like stop the machine for a minute how they get thrown into the gears and so i would at least you know my intention in, in the writing was to try to make this more of a case study of kind of how these things work within you know within empire like how these massive superstructures of like the intelligence community whatever the hell that's supposed to mean and you know how, how they're able to get away with what they get away with down you know down to even just some of the individual actors within it um, of course so yeah it's, it goes beyond just being a 9-11 book yeah the book is oh, a, I, it's I, an accountability book and, and with so many different mechanisms that have been created with good intentions within the government to try to ensure accountability uh, and I could list them, but I won't. Uh, you know, how is it that again and again, the government just seems so bad at holding people to account? And that's really kind of the central premise that's explored throughout. Well, we hear over and over again, you know, the idea that 9-11 occurred because of incompetence. And and one of the interesting things that you say, I think it's in the intro of your book, that I thought was a very succinct, just elegant way of putting it, is you both of you say, declarations of justice and freedom are but words. They require nothing of those who bellow them. Actions speak louder. The purpose of a system is what it does. And I just find that very poignant because when you actually look at what the system has done, as you said, a lot of these wrongdoers have been elevated to high positions to the point where even the person that you outed, Alfreda Burkowski, apparently... Uh, is the same person who was portrayed in Zero Dark Thirty hunting Bin Laden, and successfully with the use of torture. <laughs> yeah, so so th- it's just such a strange thing to think that here she is, kind of being portrayed in a film of the Obama era. For a lot of it takes place during the Obama era as being this heroic figure. So not only was she promoted, you know, uh, internally, she was portrayed in history as being a, a hero, heroic person, even though her name is not outed in the film itself. And that's um, never been like, confirmed, although some of our sources tell us from within Mark Bowles' camp, the screenwriter, that she was one of several right, bases for that. But I know, I know there have been reports in the press that she was the one, and uh, you have to imagine that if she was one of the bases, that she knows that she probably really enjoyed that movie becoming a blockbuster and making the uh, agency look like such, you know... Uh, crack enforcers uh when her story was actually very complicated yeah and i think i mean just just commenting on that film really quickly i think it serves as a very kind of important piece of u.s propaganda it's it's filmed in a a very handheld camera very gritty realistic style that i think sort of helps make the narrative of it go down more smoothly it almost feels like you're watching 
an episode of Cops or you know something like that. Like a, it's done in a very effective style, I think. So gives it a, like a documentary feel, so it makes it yes. feel a little more true, like yeah. almost like docudrama, something like that. You know, even the choice not to show Bin Laden's face in it. It's interesting, even the way they portray that. So that, you know, that that movie I think should be studied for many decades to come. But I'm, I'm well, digressing. The thing that but... frustrated me the most there is that if she was, if Alfreda was one of the bases for that character, um, then it, then it was misleading by omission. Because you know, as, as our book goes into, um, I mean, the number. This woman is like the Forrest Gump of bad things in the war on terror. You know how in Forrest Gump, he's just always popping up behind the scenes of these yeah. historical events. I mean, that's her. Uh, I mean, if you believe all the allegations about her and we ran them down and talked to people involved and a lot of them really hold up. Um, and that goes from the failure to prevent nine 11, um, uh, to, you know, to running spy games, uh, on the FBI with regard to that and really ending up in, in sort of ruining some FBI careers by muddying the waters when investigations happened after the fact as to whether it was the FBI's fault or hers. And then it goes on to her involvement in some bad renditions. I mean, NBC News at one point without naming her reported that her name was mentioned three dozen times in the torture report as pretty much the principal seller to Congress of misleading info about the, about the torture report. And that, I mean, we don't have time that's why we wrote a book to get into all the stuff associated with her. <laughs> yeah. So for Mark Ball to present the one achievement that appears to have saved her career, we're told that she was the person most credited internally at the Obama White House with the success of the Abbottabad op. Well, that's fantastic, but you got to put that within the context of that whole career where she again and again somehow just keeps like not getting pulled out of her position after she's been caught red-handed at a failure, 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 failure. Then she gets credited with this one and it seems to have turned it around. And uh, of course her associate Gina Haspel just became the first CIA director to, uh, to be a female, which is significant only because one of her best friends, Jen Matthews had, had always wanted to be the first female CIA director from the time she arrived. And uh, so I don't know, this is not like an old nine 11 story. This is a, these people are in high places of power right now story. Yeah, and she's uh, she's apparently still in, is what you're saying. Um, and as far as we're aware, yes, and her associate Gina Haspel is running the entire show. Is it correct that she is still currently married to Michael Scheuer? Um, I mean, I haven't. We haven't looked at. Uh, I don't think I've looked into divorce records since the book's been published. But uh, she okay. uh, was married to him as of. Uh, 2015 through 2017. Uh, yeah, okay. I believe so. Yeah, but they and they worked very closely together, which we'll go into later. Prior to nine eleven, right? He was her mentor, right? And she yeah. was kind of this sort of she was this nobody working her way up inside the bureaucracy, and this like you know, at the time, as weird as it is for modern audiences to hear this, their little Bin Laden unit was one of the most overlooked in the agency when it was looked at by people. They were so concerned about the weird power dynamic between this analyst manager named Mike Scheuer. Uh, who we can get into, but he's a bit of a character. Uh, and uh, and then just this like almost entirely inexperienced young female staffer office that he had created. And they used to refer to them as the Manson family or the Scheuer family. So when you realize how was... many people climbed to the top over a very short period of time here from that office, it, you know, 
you got to kind of take a look at that and go, hmm, is that good for the CIA? Is that good for the U.S. government, for the country as a whole? That, and that was kind of what we were looking at in this book. And yeah, I mean, I I don't want to draw any conclusions here. Maybe this would just reveal how much of a pervert I am. But it seems like there's some kind of there. It's it appears that Michael Scheuer might have been doing you know some inappropriate things, and and it has a it the way I read it in your book, it has a harem esque quality to it. And after reading this stuff about where John Kiriakou says that CIA agents are encouraged to date. Because they can right. share classified information and how they used to bang on the ta- the conference room table, just it kind of made my brain go some weird places <laughs> as I was reading your book. The, um, the they that bang <laughs> would be like random CIA people almost every night, not not Mike Scheuer and Alfredo. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I didn't want to. Uh, no, I didn't want to insinuate right. no, I mean, look, I think that was always sort of below the surface, where people were like, "What was going on there?" But now that they actually <laughs> got married, I think it's sort of fair game to question that without. But I will say, look, the only reason that you uh, that I, I want to make this clear, the only reason I emphasize the fact that they were an all-female staff uh, was because at the time there weren't a lot of females, unfortunately, probably due to sexism, uh, and there was actually a lawsuit around sexism around the, the 90s era uh, at CIA, uh, in power positions, there hadn't been a lot of women who had gotten a chance to really get field experience. And these were all analysts, and most of them were analysts in their 20s or early 30s. So he had sort of, like, that was what raised eyebrows, was just the inexperience of these people. Like, he could have staffed his office with any of 25 people in the agency or any of, you know, what became 50. Um, So they were kind of going, well, is there a power dynamic here? I always thought that was what was behind the Manson family label, was this kind of, like, you had this, like, kind of strong, odd guy with some very strong opinions about how to execute the pre-war on terror. And then he staffed it with yeah. sort of impressionable people who all seemed to be highly loyal to him. And it caused a lot of, yeah, uh, a lot of questions among those who bothered to care at the time. And I, d- I really want to spend a little time talking about Scheuer, but I wanted to jump back to, I wanted to get into the weeds a little bit on some of the things that were revealed through the Richard Clark interview and that were also discussed in Kevin Fenton's book, Disconnecting the Dots, which you guys also discuss in detail in your book, and one of those things is the, quote-unquote, this terror summit, um, the Malaysia meeting. The official record says, and according to your book, that the CIA says they lost the trail after the Malaysia meeting when these two uh, future hijackers actually flew to Thailand. And one of the things that I was thinking when I was reading this is, it seems to really stretch credibility that the CIA didn't have like agents in Bangkok that could have just been waiting at the airport for these two guys to arrive. In your book, it says the CIA has maintained that their agents working from the Bangkok station did not make it to the airport in time back to them as requested. The agents in the field apparently checked the hotels and registered on the travelers' landing cards, but the men had not gone to those hotels. In the words of the Keene Commission, the travelers disappeared into the streets of Bangkok. I mean, as I'm reading that, I just, I personally find it completely unbelievable. And I just want to know what your just personal take on that is. I mean, how believable is that, that that's when they lost their trail? They knew there were two of them were living in the United States later. So what is your takeaway from that? Yeah, it stretches credibility. Um, it stretches credulity. It's a, uh, you can't focus on something that long. I mean, and like these guys, when they're at this meeting, this week long meeting in Kuala Lumpur, they're leaving the condo that they're staying at. And 
at times going to internet cafes to use computers. They're going downstairs. They're using this payphone on the street. Um, as they're arriving, so the CIA had requested that the Malaysia Special Branch help with this espionage because it was in their country. So the Malaysia Special Branch uh, has you know, somebody videotaping these summit attendees as they show up. So they're generating videotapes. They're photographing them when they're at the, um, the payphone there. And then they, they go to the Internet cafes after they leave, and they seize the computers and get the hard drives so they can see what they were doing on the computers. Um, ultimately, I believe they also uh, look into the phone, the payphone, to see where that called to. Um, and Tom Drake uh, would later say that they, they absolutely were able to follow them. Like th- This idea that they lost them in Bangkok is ridiculous, that uh, through phone calls they were able to see where they were going. I guess that makes brings me to something else Richard Clark said, or no, that actually you guys surmised when you were t- talking to Richard Clark, as you said, so they put their own asses above national security. And Clark replied with, if you believe all this. Now, this leads to the question you guys asked earlier, why? So maybe you could just go into that a little bit. Why do you think just something th- this specific that they're claiming they couldn't find them at the airport when they arrived in Bangkok, why would they lie about Something like that, do you think? So we go into uh, a bit more depth on, um, you know, uh, that hypothesis and conjecture that Richard Clark like, first laid out to us in his office in 2009. And at the time, yes. he put it somewhat succinctly in that, you know, as, as John alluded to, he said, um, you know, there, there might be other possible reasons, but I put all the facts together. This is the only one I can come up with. And again, this isn't um, this isn't some guy with like a... This isn't Alex Jones, okay? This guy was, like, inside the, from the Reagan administration <laughs> through uh, Clinton and, and, and W. Um, and he's a guy who was very high up and worked with a lot of serious people. He's not prone to saying something that doesn't, you know, make a lot of sense from what he's seen. And he felt that there was a very good chance that because of the rivalry between FBI and CIA, and in particular the rivalry between Mike Scheuer's you know, quote-unquote Manson family, the Alex Station people, uh, and their hatred for the guy who ran counter-terror over at the FBI, uh, John O'Neill, has become somewhat famous now because he uh, passed away in the World Trade Towers on 9-11 uh, in a moment of probably the, one of the greater stories of irony I'm aware of. Uh, you know, they felt that there were... T- so, backing up, there are kind of two main approaches to, to terrorism. There was sort of, the Clintons were the first that really had to deal hardcore with the rise of Al-Qaeda and a lot of these bombings. And so the Clinton administration chose to embrace the law enforcement approach. Now, some might say, well, you know, well, 9-11 happened uh, a year after Clinton left, so I guess that didn't work. But it really kind of did. I mean, uh, what they every time there was a terror attack, they managed to you know, uh, form a case, figure out who the conspirators were and put them away for, you know, a hundred plus year counts. Uh, And, uh, and so in a lot of ways, with the USS Cole though, right? Just, just stepping in really quick. The USS Cole was an example where they were, where there was a failure somewhere in the, in the line, right? Because 
but if you want to mention that, go ahead. But, uh, that's sorry, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. But I mean, with the original World Trade, from the World Trade Center attack in 93, where it was bombed, uh, through to attempted, uh, you know, Day of Terror plot in 95, where they were going to be uh, bombing bridges and tunnels, to one they discovered where, like, uh, I think it was around a dozen airliners were going to be exploded at the same time over the Pacific, and so on and so forth. The embassy bombings, that uh, that trial was getting ready to, to come about as 9-11 happened. And, right, they hadn't quite put it all together on the USS Cole yet. But it was, they were very good at what they did, and they used old-school detective techniques uh, and interrogations that involved no torture, and they were, they, I think they had a very good success rate. Duffy may, uh, my colleague may disagree with me on that. Bush comes in, he's much more into, he and Cheney are much more into the idea of, like, you know, we're at war, kind of that whole cowboy mentality that everybody knows him for, and the idea that if you treat terrorism as a war matter, then you don't really have to follow as many of the rules. And so that tends to align more uh, with the CIA perception. Point being, though, that, that there's a lot of people, including Clark, that seem to believe that the, the folks at CIA and Mike Scheuer and those who are working the Al-Qaeda desks uh, were somewhat jealous of all these very public successes that John O'Neill's FBI team had been having over that decade. And they wanted to show they could do it, too. And in order to do that, when they saw an opportunity... When they surveilled this meeting, and that was their meeting, they found it, they surveilled it, and they watched these two guys fly over to the United States. They said to themselves, we could turn this over to John O'Neill, then he'll just arrest him before he gets really good info. You know, he'll fumble it. What, what if we take this one? And what if, well, we're going to have to break some rules because we're not supposed to operate in the U.S., but what if we get our friends in the Saudi government, and George Tenet, our CIA director, he's He's pretty close with the folks over there in the Saudi government. And we'll use some Saudis, some Saudi spies, to keep some tabs on them. I mean, so that all sounds like a pretty good idea from the CIA's perspective, except that you cut to September 11, 2001, and suddenly two buildings are hit by planes. They fall. One crashes in, you know, Pennsylvania. Another one crashes into the Pentagon. And, and there's some serious questions to be answered for. How long did the op run? Why did it not succeed in stopping the attacks? Uh, did they lose track of it? Did somebody forget about it? Did the Bush administration, were they informed about this? Were they not? I mean, a million questions, which is what got us kind of started down this road in the first place. Um, so that's the, that's the little hypothesis and conjecture theory that, that some put out there to explain this. And, and the 28 pages when they were released, as you say in their book, sort of reinvigorated Richard Clark to double down on this hypothesis to some degree. Yeah, yeah, that was the first time since our interview, uh, that we're aware of anyway, that he uh, again publicly reemerged. And I'm actually kind of blanking on the date those 28 pages came out. Was it 2015 or 2016? Fairly recently. Might have been 2017. It was, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was. feels like it was only a couple of years ago, but yeah, we'd have to check on that. Yeah, so he so he he basically put okay, out an uh, an op ed at the time because uh, he worked for uh, or he worked with regularly ABC News and just kind of essentially restated that he stood by everything he had told us, although without specifically mentioning us. But you know, um, uh, all those years later, said, "Look, the twentieth pages are out, and they point to two mysteries that still remain, which is sort of like what role did the Saudi government have in the attacks, and why did the CIA never tell any other agency, including me." That uh, that they knew these a couple of these guys were in the country, and he, he says in the op-ed, I believe those two issues are related. Yeah, and 
while it is an interesting theory, I, I've had a hard time wrapping my head around his hypothesis just because it's still hard for me to believe that this many people in the CIA, just because they wanted to get an informant in Al-Qaeda trying to recruit them, that they would put at risk this many people's lives. Like it's, it's still a confounding hypothesis in some ways. So I, yep. you know, what's, but what's even more confounding is if you get to summer of like 2001 and you start, as we put in the book, you start seeing there's this, one of the guys who originally, uh, a guy named Tom Wilshire, who was first revealed by Lawrence Wright's Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Looming Tower, uh, he had been at CIA and he'd given the original order that we're going to hold off on telling this information. Um, and uh, and then cut to about May of 2001, and uh, when they're when the CIA is choosing who they're going to send over to be their liaison to the FBI's counterterror department, they send Tom Wilshire. His job is to facilitate passage of information, something that he's already shown himself internally to be very bad at. And uh, but over the course of that summer, he seems to become almost captured by his work with the folks at the FBI. And it, it, it has the appearance, although we can't tell, that his sympathies start to kind of come around and he starts realizing that in the, you know, the summer that they characterized as like the summer of threat with so many warnings coming in, but them not quite sure exactly what the warnings were pointing to, he starts sending emails back to other managers at Alex Station and he, he begins asking permission to inform uh, the FBI about connections between the USS Cole attack, which happened in Yemen, that the FBI is investigating, which happened in late 2000, um, and some of these folks uh, that had met with them at the meeting that, that John Duffy had described uh, earlier in the podcast. Um, and, you know, he's not, he's apparently never given the go-ahead to tell them. And the story gets a little convoluted, but this is part of why, you know, Richard Clark in our interview uh, said without question, even if even if George Tenet had told him at the White House principals meeting that happened on September 4th, 2001, even that late, um, that he has no question in his mind they would have found those assholes, as he puts it. Um, so that's obviously Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, it makes sense when you think all they had to do was simply ban, if they had sent a notice to the FAA or some other government body and said, hey, these people flag them, you know, arrest them, detain them when they get to the airport or even before. I mean, if they knew where they were living or, you know, and they had their phone records via this NSA surveillance. So it is, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a totally valid point on his part. And, and that's one important question people should be asking. The, at the end of August in 2001, right? August is a huge month because all these things are coming to a head. All the pieces for 9-11 are falling into place. And what we see happen is not only does John O'Neill leave the FBI, but like a day later, they get a call over at counterterror at the FBI from the CIA saying, hey, we think these bad guys might be in the country. And um, this is – it's significant because at this point, the, the CIA has kind of created this weird like digital sort of paper trail to make it seem as if they just stumbled upon – now Al Hazmi and Khalid Almidar's entry into the country, you know, a year and a half or whatever ago, just then, August of 2001. So basically there was uh, an agent at Alex Station had, who had been tasked with uh, that summer with going back over the old Malaysia summit cable traffic in her spare time. 
and to just kind of, you know, just look at that because we need to, something's going on here. We need to tease it out. And you can look at the book for the details and the exact days of when things got passed because it looks really sort of fishy. But ultimately what happens is it looks like there's this aha moment where she goes, oh, my gosh, these guys flew to the country in uh, in January of 2000. And by um, by doing this, they kind of create for themselves like this moment where they can say, oh, we didn't know this whole time leading up to it. We just realized it now. So here you go, FBI, go get them. And of course, then this thing happens where it the search for these guys uh, is conducted at, as uh, as like an intelligence uh, search, not as a criminal search or vice versa, whatever, I'm screwing that up, but um, because of the wall and all that nonsense. But the point is that on September 4th, George Tenet sits down in a room with all these other national security principals, including Richard Clark, and he's strangely silent, doesn't really say anything, and doesn't mention Almidar, doesn't mention Al-Hazmi. Now, we're talking like roughly a week and a half after his own CIA has given itself an excuse to, to like finally notice that these guys are here and has now mentioned it to the FBI, but only the sort of lower levels of the FBI, and they don't... And George Tenet says nothing. So it's weird not only that he says nothing in that meeting because he could totally bring it up because he now has his own fake excuse of when he learned this information. Oh, someone in Alex Station just dredged it up from the old cable traffic. Um, But also that we then see the 9-11 attacks succeed. And it's sort of like if this was an operation by the CIA to flip al-Qaeda guys and get good reporting on al-Qaeda and maybe wrap up their whole network – at what point did they plan on stopping that operation you know when when they see that it's going bad so really it's like were they were they triple crossed like did they think it was still under control did they think that their saudi counterparts at saudi intelligence had these guys under control and nothing bad was going to happen well what about all those plane tickets they all just bought at the same time like it seems like they had every opportunity in late August to shut it down. Like even if they had been fucking around and doing illegal stuff for a year and a half running this operation, they had full range of opportunity to e- to even with a cover your ass ex- like excuse of when they learned these guys were here to shut it down in August. And they didn't. You explained it better than I understood it in the book, actually. And it's really intriguing because just a few weeks before that is when Mike Morrell, who's sort of known as like a Clinton character now, briefed President Bush with the infamous bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. PDB. And when Bush uh, got this from Morrell, his response was, okay, you've covered your ass. And you sort of speculated yeah. in the book, was Bush just being Bush? Was he on to something? Did he feel he was constantly being given confusing or non-actionable intelligence? That theory kind of lines up with the way John Ashcroft responded to threat alerts, uh, according to Phil Shannon's book. But it's interesting because the one of the key themes of your book that keeps coming up is this wall that was between not only the CIA and FBI, which is featured prominently in your book, but the fact that Richard Clark was in constant communication with the White House, and he also reinforces this, that there was a wall seemingly between the CIA and the White House, that the people in the Bush administration actually weren't in the loop, or at least according to records of a lot of this stuff, including even as late as September 4th, when they didn't even tell the White House about these two future hijackers that were living inside the United States. Which at that point was the Bush White House, but yes, yes. Yeah. 
And to be and to be very clear, the wall was a bit between like uh, that we're talking about with the FBI and such. That is a that is a legal wall. It's not you know it's a it, it's it's legal restrictions on how investigations are conducted. There's a separation between criminal investigations and intelligence investigations. And certain information cannot be shared between the two. Uh, Certain tools are not available to people on either side, uh, depending on what they're up to. Now, there were some people involved in the coal investigation, uh, Steve Bongart, namely, uh, who was, he was sort of, he wrote both sides of that. He had clearance uh, he was part of a criminal investigation into the into the coal, but he had clearance as an intelligence agent as well. So he could have been given any of this. And he was like begging, pleading, screaming to get this, some of this information that they'd been teased with earlier in the summer and still not gotten it. Now, any wall between the CIA and the White House, that would be more of a figurative thing. That would just be like a stone wall of like some some silence on this particular issue that's being thrown up by particular individuals. But I just wanted to clarify that, that there was a, a legally distinctive separation at the FBI and and Got it. when you say there's a wall between the CIA and the White House that's more of like a figurative blockade. Yeah. Well but I guess right, I was referring if I may um, you know the sure. I think because we're kind of we're getting very into the weeds and this stuff can be super fascinating but the reality is uh, how, how long ago was 9/11 at this point uh, 18 years um, you know it's thank you uh, it's, uh, it's bit, look, I think the people who say this doesn't matter anymore, I don't think that's quite right, but I also can see the point. It's become a historical debate. And where I think this comes into modern relevance and importance is like, maybe we can't know exactly what it was that motivated these particular people that worked at the, at the CIA to withhold this information. But if you, where I think the story gets super interesting uh, is the point when you start looking at what emerged when after the attacks that changed the country, after we mm-hmm. knew how serious all these events were. And you can establish a bit of a trail that's like really interesting. Like the, the end of the, by the end of the very first day, by the end of 9-11, uh, Ali Soufan and uh, uh, Rob McFadden, an FBI and an NCIS agent who've been working the USS Cole sending three different messages to CIA begging for this exact information and having just lost his mentor, John O'Neill, uh, missing and presumed dead in the World Trade Center gets, you know, he's about to board a flight out of Yemen to go start this 9-11 investigation. They call him back in and he gets called into the, the CIA office there in Yemen. And the guy won't even look him in the eyes and hands him a file folder and they open it up and they see pictures of the guys that they had established were the masterminds of the USS Cole meeting with these other guys who are those guys oh we found out they were on the they were on the flight they're on the flights that hit the, you know uh, the pentagon and he is so upset that this has been withheld by people he's been working alongside this whole time that he runs into the bathroom and vomits and two months later when he gets to the states he tells his boss who's running the fbi's official investigation into the crime of 9-11 pat demoro and DeMauro is hopping mad, and he eventually figures out that not only one of the guys who helped him for like a year with the investigation, Tom Wilshire, but then the guy that came in to replace him, Rich Blee, were both part of, he later hears, uh, a decision to withhold this information. Why, he thought. Uh, but the really, the red, the, the, the big one to me, the smoking gun, first got reported in Phil Shannon's book, The Commission, November of 2001. George Tenet has made a pitch to Bush just after 9-11 
to empower the CIA and launch this war on terror. We're going to lead it for you, buddy, and we're going to be every bit as tough as you want us to be. Uh, and we're going to take all our key bin Laden people that have been ignored up till now, and we're going to promote them and elevate them and empower them. And so he's, you know, months into this power grab when one of his historians presents him with the cables that prove that his people knew, and for whatever reason, and we'll speculate forever, they didn't tell anybody. So what does George Tenet, as, as the big boss, as the head of the CIA, do? I mean, at any decent company, at any, at any company, whether Fortune 500 or, like, just a small mom-and-pop business, you find out your people, you know, completely failed, you're at least going to have a conversation with them. You're, you're going to maybe suspend them while you look into what it was they did. There's no evidence that ever happened, and as we see, that had consequences. So when I keep saying this isn't really a 9-11 story, we can get caught in the weeds of the what-ifs about 9-11, and that's fine. What we know for a fact is that people failed at their jobs in a really bad way that had a terrible and tragic outcome for the country, and what their bosses chose to do appears was to protect them. And because he did that, the torture program proceeded. Then they fumbled the torture program. These people were placed in charge of drones and the targeting, you know, assassination stuff. And then as time went on, they got away with it for long enough and became a part of the big establishment at the top as they rose very quickly. Uh, they began to target anybody like Tom Drake, like John Kiriakou, who would start to come forward with information about what they were doing. They sort of moved from a defensive position to at some point they had gotten away with it, and they moved into an offensive position, which continues to this day. And that's the disturbing part. Well, if you want to get into some of this stuff after 9-11, um, if you feel like we've exhausted the the leading up to 9-11 topic, um, <laughs> I have a little bit of stuff. I don't want to deflate you, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> no. You seem like you were so eager to get in the weeds. You're like, he's like, I've got them. I've got them on the line. Like, we can talk about this shit. And Ray's like, let's move on. <laughs> so the Pent Bomb investigation that was ordered and then later stopped by Ashcroft and Robert Mueller, uh, in your book, you say that Ashcroft and FBI Director Mueller have ordered agents to drop their investigation of the 9-11 attacks or any other assignment that time that they learn of a threat or lead that might suggest a future attack. Mueller believes his agents have a broad understanding of the events of September 11th and now need to concentrate on intelligence suggesting that other terrorist attacks are likely. And I guess my question is, do you buy the sort of the official reason for stopping the FBI end of the 9-11 investigation? Do you think that the ending of that FBI investigation into 9-11 had anything to do with this this idea that it seemed like the CIA was deliberately trying to hide at least these two names of these people from other FBI investigators. I'll, I'll say something brief and then, and then Ray can uh, piggyback onto it. Cause I, I'll just start with saying, I, I don't know. I, I don't have a clear, really concise argument one way or the other. I can say that kind of going back to what Ray mentioned earlier regarding the competition sort of between uh, the FBI's way of doing things and the CIA's way of doing things, that the scales were definitely tipping at that point in the favor of the CIA. And it was being made to seem like the FBI really botched this one. And they were taking most of the blame for the success of the 9-11 attack at that time. And like you're the saying, FBI you know, was? was new. Uh, yeah, like in, insofar as like who, when, when they start pointing fingers, like who fucked up here? Like it was, it was, going, it was going in the direction that it was the FBI that blew it. And... Um, 
So, and like Ray said, like there was this big pitch meeting where the CIA was like, "Hey, we're gonna we're we're gonna be your number one guys. We'll run this, you know, this war on terror for you. We'll go, we'll charge into Afghanistan. We'll go do it your way. We'll be tough." You know, at that very same meeting, Robert, you know, Mueller is there, and he's basically mum. He doesn't really have much to say. And at that time, it is said that they were there was even talk of shit canning the FBI and like basically like wrapping them up into other agencies or something like that. They were, they're basically saying your, your bureau is hanging on by a threat. So this idea that they would jump at any threat and immediately like stop what they were doing, like, and run off and make sure no other attack happened right, you know, in that immediate aftermath, it's not, it's not super crazy to me that they were sort of on that hair trigger of trying to make sure nothing else happened so they wouldn't be faulted for it. Now, mm-hmm. um, I also would like to make the distinction, and like, I don't want to carry water for the FBI necessarily here or anything. I'm not trying to say that they're like the ultimate good guys or anything. We, but we should draw distinctions, too, between the levels of the FBI. Like you got your FBI headquarters in D.C., who there's a handful of people there who look suspect for a handful of things in this tale. And then you got guys in, who are just like investigators at like field stations like in New York and such. Um, and... You know, you might have had people like Ali Soufan or Danny Coleman, whoever, who are who are working in New York, working counter-terror, who are sort of in the dark on a lot of this stuff as it was in the lead-up, who were desperately seeking certain information and trying to get it out of the, out of the CIA, and then only to find out later, like, someone higher up in the FBI had this. Why the fuck didn't you tell us? You know, so I don't want to make it seem like the FBI is one big monolith, because um, I think it's just more complicated than that, but... Uh, Ray, I don't know if you have more on that. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I just kind of agree with with the you. I know because the the thing was the guy who ended up uh, running the the immediate you know uh, investigation into the you know the criminal you know murder of three thousand people, um, uh, Pat DeMauro, uh He was originally out of the New York office and had for four years been a deputy to uh, to John O'Neill, who had lost his life, and uh, they were the ones who had looked into the USS Cole attack and had uh, this all withheld from them, and and they would spend the rest of their lives feeling that, you know, had the CIA just been straight with them, they might have saved not only their mentor's life but all these people, which. Uh, you know, what ended up happening was as the CIA kind of got the upper hand and got the power and became the favorite of the Bush administration, all these folks who had been so successful under the Clinton era kind of slowly got pushed out and they saw the writing on the walls and some retired early and, you know, some left for the private sector and, and you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it was this was a career ender for them, ultimately, in a lot of ways. And, and only as time has gone on, if they felt that some stories beginning with like Lawrence Wright's uh, book, uh, The Looming Tower, began to reset the narrative. But it took a very long time for people to really realize that the bulk of the evidence uh, really pointed to some massively bad decisions that ran over 18 months inside particular areas of the CIA um, that resulted you know, in a lot of tragedy. You mentioned John O'Neill a few times during this discussion. One of the things that's interesting to me is you know a lot of truthers um uh, in general have tried to link his death to some sort of larger conspiracy that he was basically assassinated he was placed in the right time in the right place you know um but what's more fascinating to, to me than that a conspiracy theory that's popular among truthers is 
the the sort of the actual story of this um, him losing a briefcase um, at a point before um, I think he was still in the FBI at the time, and uh, it had classified documents in it apparently. I'm probably botching some of the details of this, but later he was, there was something that leaked in the press about this incident. And I guess up until then, um, it was just known only in, internally that he had done this and, and it sort of ru- helped ruin his career in the FBI. Can you just go into what happened there and, and what exactly was that? And what, and who was, was he working on the bin Laden case or specifically, or was he working on something else at that time? I don't know what was in the briefcase. Uh, they were definitely working on putting together a prosecutable case against bin Laden at that time. Um, but John I would O'Neill say was. That John O'Neill was. Uh, but I okay. would say that if there had been anything to some kind of a setup there, which I'm assuming is where the truthers, right? So I guess the truthers would, would say that uh, John O'Neill steps out to take a call, comes back, finds his briefcase missing, um, and then, you know, uh, the month before 9-11, somebody, uh, an enemy of his somewhere, plants a story in the New York Times revealing that there's an investigation into that. Because of that, he feels he's got um, no further to climb. His career's over in the agency, and so he ends up taking, somehow gets offered a job and takes it in the World Trade Center. I mean, my God, if there was ever an argument for the absurdity of a conspiracy theory, I mean, to, to actually, for someone to believe that there was a conspiracy to end up getting him into those towers or he would be in the crosshairs, I mean, that is just beyond the pale. And uh, by the way, the, um, you know, we've become somewhat, uh, we've gotten to know some sources pretty well who were incredibly close with John O'Neill, a guy named uh, Mark Rossini, um, and then uh, the aforementioned uh, uh, Ali Soufan uh, is is not somebody that we've gotten to know that well, but he uh, he's been working with the filmmaker Alex Gibney, who recently did uh, that Hulu series. I, I sounds like I keep promoting it uh, called The Looming Tower, but they did a whole episode on this. So if anyone wants to kind of get the nitty gritty of the, the, the John O'Neill story, I just highly recommend they go check out Hulu and uh, and just like barrel through that to, to get all that stuff. But I think if if there had been much to that what you're talking about there, I think there would have been more made about it in Ali Soufan's book, The Black Banners, or or certainly Mark Racine would have uh, mentioned it about a billion times to us, which he, he never did. So. Well, no, I mean, I just kind of just, I, I just threw that, you know, that, that terrible version of the conspiracy theory out there. But what I, the only reason I threw it out there is because that, that sort of truth or narrative overshadows something else, just, you know, more interesting story from your book. I want you to go into more detail about what actually happened and what do you guys think that whole incident was um, where he lost that briefcase with classified documents. I wasn't suggesting that like it was like a, you know, a setup. I'm just wondering what, well, that, not what the implications of that were. That's not that at all. I just think there's like, <laughs> you know, the thing is all this stuff will tend to get lumped together, right? Like, like in particular when the mainstream media was super strong up until recently before like a million blogs sort of tore, tore apart the narrative, uh, you know, they would try to lump, Everything that questioned, you know, there'd be sort of the main narrative that was acceptable that would kind of come out of the White House and everyone would sort of get the sense in terms of the media as to what was like inbounds and what was out. And a lot of the stuff that we were looking at that we came to find was embraced by not only most of the counterterror people in the FBI, but Richard Clark this whole set of individuals in the NSA and so on and so forth as detailed in the book, like we would often get lumped into quote unquote conspiracy theory when we knew 
this was stuff that should be taken seriously that was coming from serious people and that was in, you know, real documents like the inspector general's report. So I guess when stuff gets thrown out there, that's sort of like, well, what about the hologram planes? And <laughs> I'm just kind of like, ah, oh, Jesus, but I'm not saying that's what you were doing. Well, what about the hologram saying. planes, Ray? What about them? <laughs> and the lizard people. And, you know, it, it's, it just all sort of takes you away from what I think is really the point which is why does anyone look at these things? You look at them to try to figure out who did wrong so you can fix it, right? And so to me, it always comes back to accountability. And that's why we tried to tell a story not of like one year, but we tried to tell a story from the late 80s to like 2015 because you could see that like because people didn't take seriously this story within the CIA in the 9-11 period and immediately thereafter, you could then follow and track and see what more harm was caused by these people staying in their positions and rising from there. Um, so that's the important thing for, for me to kind of try to always remind maybe your listeners to go back to is the point, you know. Um, sorry, I don't mean to be on a soapbox. You're also the first ones that have uh, asked us to, to do any media around this yet. And uh, and I got to credit your sister, Robbie, too, uh, Abby Martin, on, on her show Breaking the Set in uh, late 2014, uh, had me on to talk about Alfreda Bukowski right after the torture report came out of the Senate. And she's still to this day, the only person to have given us national television exposure and to have given Alfreda Bukowski national television exposure. So, you know, thank you. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Yeah. That's a, that's actually pretty interesting. So yeah, we, like Ray says, it, it goes beyond nine 11. There's a lot of, you know, for those who are interested, it definitely, I think does its best to lay out a case to, uh, to sort of support Richard Clark's uh, hypothesis and conjecture. Uh, we talked to a variety of individuals. We talked to people who worked at the CIA, at the FBI, uh, at the NSA. Uh, we talked to Larry Wilkerson, Lawrence Wilkerson, who was who uh, um, an Army colonel who was deputy sec- secretary to Colin Powell. Um, and, you know, each of these people is able to add – a little more structure to the hypothesis to give it a, a bit more uh, credibility. Um, so there's a lot, there's that whole thing in the book, and I, there's some you know a lot of new stuff. So people who may have been uh, really fascinated with the 9/11 topic, you know, there's definitely going to be things in there that they haven't seen yet. You know, quotes from people who are on the inside to lay support for this, um, and then it definitely goes into too like the uh, a really interesting angle out of the. NSA. So as we know, because of the Snowden stuff after like, you know, Snowden did what he did uh, and it became sort of irrefutable that the NSA is spying on everyone, collecting uh, metadata, doing all this, that um, you st- you take that and you lay that back onto this 9-11 story and it sort of creates this case. Well, if the NSA is in on all these phone calls and it's clear through the historical record that they were monitoring a particular house in Yemen where that Al Qaeda used as like a phone hub, a phone switchboard, right? This house uh, was owned by a friend of bin Laden, a guy who had fought with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and who also then happened to be the father-in-law of Khalid al-Midar, future, you know, 9-11 hijacker. Uh, The NSA is listening to the phone out of this house, right? They're aware of it. They're listening to it. Mike Scheuer at the CIA becomes aware of it, and uh, he goes to the NSA and says, give me your intercepts. i got to know what's going in and out of that house. And the NSA says, ah, we'll give you reports. You know, We won't give you the raw. We'll give you reports. 
he basically says that's not good enough. And after making a stink, he ultimately is able to build a satellite station on and like Madagascar to listen to this phone in this house. And he gets part, he gets like half the conversations. He gets uh, one side of them, not, not, but not both. So they kind of have to fill in the gaps best they can. The point is NSA is listening to this house. Khalid Amidar, Nawaf al-Hazmi, they fly to the United States. They are living in San Diego. They have a phone in their apartment that is in Nawaf al-Hazmi's own name. Now, Khalid Amidar, his wife, his pregnant wife, lives at this house uh, in Yemen, and he makes several phone calls to this house to ostensibly to speak to his wife and possibly also to pass on messages to uh, you know the bin Laden network. Now, it, the NSA is listening and to calls going into and out of the house, both sides of them. They're going to pick up the calls from San Diego coming in, and someone sitting there must go, wait a minute, San Diego is calling this house. Why is, it, why is a phone number in San Diego calling this house you know, seven times? Of course. Uh, let's see whose phone number that is. Let's look up this number. <laughs> oh, we don't have to do any real digging. It's in the phone book. It's a guy. His name's Noah Fulhazme. Where have we heard that? <laughs> now, so clearly, there's this whole other angle here where someone at the NSA must have been uh, aware of these phone calls. And probably thought, you know, whoever's lonely desk job is to sit and monitor this particular phone day in, day out, must kind of go, huh, light bulb moment, and try to bring this to some higher ups. Now, this opens up the big question. Why does this never end up uh, leaving the NSA and going, let's say, for a FISA warrant for the FBI to start monitoring this house or to go get a search warrant to go to this house? So there must have been some sort of... um, uh, stopgap to make sure that whoever's monitoring this house in Yemen, if again we believe all this about the CIA running this op, doesn't uh, why doesn't this information leave the NSA get to the FBI and wrap it up? So, so someone must have come through there and stopped that information from leaving. And we talked to Tom Drake, a uh, famous NSA whistleblower, about this, and uh, it gets kind of detailed from there. So uh, the book also has this whole chunk on the NSA and what was going on over there uh, with uh, Bill Binney's Thin Thread program and uh, and how that fits into this whole narrative of 9-11. And it's, it's, it's big stuff. I don't know. It's kind of hard to lay the whole thing out. But As he says, I mean, to me, it might everything. come down to like one quote because it, uh, it, uh, it, it does become complex. But, um, you know, at one point when the domestic surveillance program is first being instituted, uh, well, well before Ed Snowden will find out about it and end up, you know, leaking it to the world, um, Tom Drake and some of the other folks inside NSA, that, uh, uh, like Bill Binney and so on, uh, they found out super early, like within the first few weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Tom Drake has this epiphany where he's like, He's seeing the staff at the low levels of the Al-Qaeda NSA analysts are just torn apart. Like two of them have heart attacks. One dies from the heart attack. A third one, the one who had been monitoring that Al-Qaeda communications hub that that John mentioned, uh, she like leaves with a nervous breakdown, never to come back. Um, so, So they're taking it really seriously. But at the top level, people like General Michael Hayden, uh, Maureen Bikinski, people who had the power to release some of the reports and some of the things that those folks were doing in Al-Qaeda but sort of sat on them. And again, it's a bit of a convoluted story that's sort of better detailed in the book. Uh, you know, they're not 
processing it in the same way that most of us would think would be normal, you know, like uh, mourning it the way the lower level people are. And when Drake realizes that there's a domestic spying operation and they're going to now turn the apparatus inward on the, you know, phone records and emails of the country, uh, there's this epiphany where he realizes that, like, basically General Hayden, in order to mentally cope with this, this is his opinion, but I think it's, it makes a lot of sense to me, is going to, he's not going to let this 9-11 failure be the mark that defines him for history. Instead, he's going to make, you know, this unconstitutional collection that's going to stop future attacks, the mark that will define him with history. And the really sick thing is that, like, we've got such a short memory in this country that even people like Bill Maher would be kind of, I'm a huge fan, and he would be, I think, sickened by the realities of some of this story, have, you know, Michael Hayden on as a pundit. He's like, he's written books, Mike Scheuer's written books, you know, Rodriguez and the CIA, who uh, was one of the the biggest advocates uh, for the the torture program and was really the mentor of Gina Aspel, who's now running the CIA. Like, he he goes on book tours, and, you know, um, anyway, uh, the amnesia's the amnesia is a bad thing, uh, in particular for like a well-functioning and ethical government, and uh, and that's why I think we we go back into this sort of twenty-year story as a bit of a refresher on what all these people did, when, and why. Yeah. And yeah. and if I can just jump in on the the issue right there of the warrantless wiretapping and all that, like I just told you, the the NSA was already listening to the prominent call. Uh, the pr- prominent hub in Yemen there and already saw the calls from San Diego. Like they were listening to everything they needed to listen to, to basically wrap up the nine 11 plot like a year in some odd months before it ever started. But they, they didn't. So they, what do they, what does the government end up telling us? They tell us, well, we need to listen to your phone calls. We need to look at your emails. We need to look at your bank statements because we, one of these attacks could just happen. They already had the technology in place to wrap it up, to stop this. And they didn't. They, and it wasn't even like the technology was malfunctioning. It was, they were, the, the, the person at the desk was getting the pings, seeing the calls coming from San Diego, trying to send it up the pipe, getting stopped. So the technology in, was already in place to do everything they needed to do to prevent major terrorist attacks from Al-Qaeda. But there was a bureaucracy in place that was preventing it from being used effectively, and that was actually being used to just further grow the bureaucracy. And I think that's kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier with sort of systems and how we, we look at these questions and it's it's in our nature to go, okay, well, how do we fix this? Do we just, maybe we create this new department or maybe we get rid of these bad guys and ultimately then we patch a few holes and bada bing, bada boom, the system works. And really, like, we have to, like it says in the, at the outset there, the, the purpose of a system is what it does. We got to stop presuming we know what the purpose of this system is. We got to stop presuming we know the intentions and motivations of this super architecture of these like state, you know, bureaucracies and systems and in, instead start looking at what they do, how they exploit tragedy, how they don't act to intervene when they should, how they end up in many cases, like we've seen after 9-11 time and time again, just setting up patsies like these, uh, you know, mentally unstable people who, you know, are, are, you know, Muslims in America and like set them up to, you know, be terrorists and then so they can, just so they can say they have a big arrest and look good. Um, and then, you know, it's this self, like it's a metastasizing cancer, you know, these, these systems. And, uh, at the end of the day, like Ray's saying, 
people who do commit some of the worst atrocities, people who commit crimes, people who perjure themselves, people who lie, who commit crimes and then lie about it, people who you know like uh, Rodriguez. He illegally destroyed the torture tapes. He was told not to destroy the tapes of the torture. They could be evidence of a crime, and he destroys them anyway. Um, and and Haspel's involved in that as well. And But what do they get? They get book tours. They yeah, get book deals. They get the head of the CIA to run. Jobs on shows. You know, uh, yeah, you get, a bigger, you get a bigger agency. You, get, you either get to move into a, a fat private sector contract, or you get a, a big book deal, or you get uh, to be on... Fox News or or MSNBC is like regular intelligence analyst commentator, and if you happen to be one of the people who tried to point out that this was all there was crimes going on and lies and perjury, uh, you get investigated, you get your house raided, you get charges brought against you, maybe you go to jail, you know, or worse, you know. I mean, Robbie, let let me know when this starts sounding like a rant, but just sort of jumping off from that point, uh, you know, Michael Scheuer, you you mentioned him earlier, right? You said you wanted to talk about him a little bit. Um, He was this guy who early on people didn't quite know where he was coming from, but within the agency there were folks that just had a weird feeling about him. And whatever blame you'd want to put on George Tennant and his people, they kind of knew enough to remove Mike Scheuer fairly early, and so did Richard Clark, and so they kind of got him out. The inference has always been that he never really left because he staffed Alex Station. They all kind of stayed loyal to him, and there's a story about some of them literally keeping pictures of him <laughs> above their desks like a shrine. I mean, I, I don't know if you keep any pictures of Xboxes above your desk, but I think it says a bit about their loyalty. And Scheuer's been yeah, described yeah. as, uh, what was it, this uh, Jewish uh, uh, magazine uh, commentary, uh, kind of a right-wing magazine tried to capture him as a cross between an overwrought Buchananite and a raving Chomskyite. So this guy was sort of made to be a third party. He always kind of hated Clinton, always kind of hated Bush. He always kind of hated even Tenet, even though Tenet really kind of took the shackles off and let let him do what he needed to do. But that guy was the guy who, he made his big break when we mentioned the Clinton, the Clintons, uh, Bill Clinton backing the law enforcement approach by and large. Well, he and Richard Clark made an exception to that. Uh, and so when they were seeing this al-Qaeda terrorism problem emerge, it was actually Richard Clark. Uh, who came up with the idea that maybe it'd be a good idea to do this thing, renditions. Um, and it was Mike Scheuer who made them, quote-unquote, extraordinary renditions, which meant that instead of kidnap, instead of sending a team, a rogue team that works for the U.S. government, to go capture this guy who's on the run overseas and bring him back so he can stand trial, that at least has some semblance of legality to it, right? Uh, at some point, he'll be confronted with evidence by his accusers. Instead, they make it extraordinary in the sense that they don't really want to bring them back for trial anymore. They just want to kind of disappear them so they're not a problem. And mind you, this is based entirely off just evidence presented within an agency. And they feel like it's good enough. They take it to the president, and the president goes, yeah, okay, you can kidnap the guy. So because he was able to sign a deal with uh, Scheuer, because Mike Scheuer was able to get a deal signed with, with the Egyptian government, which they knew would torture to take these guys in, these problem people that they kidnapped. Uh, they got the Extraordinary Renditions Program off the ground, and, and therefore he was given this Bin Laden office, Alex Station, to run and staff with his people, including Alfredo Bukowski and others. Um, and so you see where this guy's career goes. You know, uh, Then there's his protege, Alfredo Bukowski. So even when Mike Scheuer 
uh, ends up leaving to become a professional pundit and book author and sort of influence from the outside. Uh, his future wife remains on the inside, um, you know, uh, botching renditions and, over, you know, lying to Congress about torture and overseeing the drones program and then eventually getting bin Laden. And, uh, you know, she gets called by Jane Mayer in one article, uh, the uh, unidentified queen of torture. And, you know, the little capper to the story becomes, you know, to Duffy's point, uh, the, all these years later, what has happened to those folks? You know, by 2015, uh, they get married. You know, it's a match made in Washington. And the architect of renditions, <laughs> you know, lives with the queen of torture in a little, you know, beautiful suburban house in Virginia. And she continues to come into the CIA and he continues to, uh, you know, write op-eds and, sort of influence from the outside. It's, it's, it's an incredibly interesting story about how things work. And for those who, of us who are kind of like ethically minded and worried about the effects of all this stuff, uh, it's a bit of a nightmare story, you know? Yeah. And it's a just fun fact about Scheuer's what he's been up to recently is threatening civil war on blog postings because he thinks that it's time for Trump supporters to fight the elites with firearms which I just yeah. find quite mind-blowing, going almost beyond Alex Jones in some ways now. Yeah, um, he's, all, he's all in for Trump. And then, you know, you've got other folks who uh, were sort of associated with the Clintons. It's, it's kind of interesting because they've, um, the Trump phenomenon, they've tried to create this sense that there's a quote-unquote deep state. And it's not that there aren't people who hold influence within the government that are sort of, that's sort of undemocratic. But I think it's, it's sort of more, more like there's multiple deep states. I mean, there's basically, there's just kind of like, just like that in the actions. regular world, right? There's just, there's just people who kind of like all believe a certain way. And if they can kind of like start talking to each other, they realize maybe we can kind of move things in this direction. And there's other people that believe otherwise mm -hmm. and they try to counter it and so on. And I think there's a lot of that. Uh, and our job, I guess, is to, at least as journalists, is to try to expose as much truth as possible so that the, you know, maybe the public can, do what they can to at least be aware of the realities. Um, and, and then, and then when people are caught red handed doing terrible things, perhaps we can push people to hold them to account. I think that would be better than what's been happening. Your book does an excellent job of, of, I think showing some of that, what you're talking about, that factionalism inside, you know, even if we're just talking about these, this idea of multiple deep states, I mean, completely unrelated to this, but even just the factionalism between like team Obama and team Hillary is very fascinating to see a lot of the ideological differences and, and a lot of disdain you see expressed in the leaked Colin Powell emails. There's things where apparently people on team Obama didn't want Hillary to win the 2016 election, just crazy things like that. So I think there's a, you know, you, you can't look at all this as some monolithic or oversimplified thing. And that's, I think what tends to be the drift we're on right now is people are tending to look at things in a more conspiratorial oversimplified fashion so I, I think what you guys are doing is extremely important and that you're parsing out all these details. It's just a story that needs to be told. And, and what you mentioned earlier about gathering, you know, all these former officials quotes to speak on the matter. There's a lot of original uh, new material in there from these important players and all of this. And it just, it's very interesting because a lot of this, I'm assuming some of it was more recently taken some of these quotes from discussion. So it's just a very fascinating view on 
and not just 9-11, as you were saying, but exactly what happened afterwards and just how the, all these other agencies uh, took advantage of it in, in their own way. And uh, yeah, you guys did an amazing job. I can't, I can't wait to, <laughs> to finish it. Yeah. Well, I hope somebody Very reads impressive. it. Thank you, and <laughs> thank you yeah. for helping us promote it and for always sort of being in, in our corner very early on. That uh, really means a lot. Uh, so thanks. Thanks, Robbie and Abby, wherever you are. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, thanks. Thanks to both of you. I mean, we, we both appreciate the work you guys do on a regular basis. So uh, I'm a subscriber to Media Roots Radio I'm, uh, uh, podcast and such. And I've, I watch uh, uh, Empire Fire Files and stuff that Abby does and um, follow you all on, online and things like that. But um, I, I would like to say just kind of in closing, uh, just to this point about deep states and factions and all that, like, I don't, it's easy for people, I think, to get lost in that and then to feel like they have to pick one of those factions or like to feel like, well, this one's better than that one at least, or at least yeah. this team is a little, not not as terrible as that team. And it's like, we don't have to join their teams. Yeah, we don't exactly. have to have anything to do with their teams. <laughs> and ultimately, I think what we have to do as just everyday, ordinary, like working class people is recognize that none of them are on our team. Those people who sit in those positions of power, I mean, this machine of state empire and its connection to contractors and capitalism is so big and it's so, it, in, it's in control of so much power and wealth. Yes, of course, those factions are trying to wrest control of this thing because it's massively profitable to do so. And I think they want to take control of it so they can put in their own agenda and they can tweak the knobs a little bit to favor their players, favor the people who helped get them there, get their own personal ego boost from sitting in a position of power, what have you. But, um, yeah, we don't, we as the sort of rank and file, we don't have to pick one of those sides and we should understand that ultimately they're all on, a, they all have one big agenda. And that yeah. is a, a, like a global empire for maximum profit, maximum production, maximum profit. How can we get it? And how can we maintain a certain status quo that keeps them living a very high, highly powerful and elite lifestyle while the rest of us struggle? And whether that means people around the world who are dying because their wedding party got bombed by a hellfire drone, or whether that means you're working in a sweatshop in Bangladesh to make clothes for a rich country, um, or you know whether that means you're living in the United States off of, you know, food stamps because you got two part-time jobs, whatever. I mean, like we all, all of those people got to understand that we, the, like those other ones at the top trying to control this machine or trying to control our, our allegiances through slogans, you know, and, you know, whether it's make America great again or resist or whatever, like they, they want us for, they, they want to use us. Right. And we need to, not play their games anymore and see and see this for what it is and pull ourselves back from the sort of the precipice and not join Mike Scheuer's civil war, you know? Um, <laughs> Very well put. The only tweak I would add to that though, is that uh, there are occasionally a few good guys who emerge within the system. And, uh, and usually you can tell because they're the ones getting crushed in one way or another. People like John yeah. Kiriakou at the CIA uh, or Mark Rossini at the FBI, um, you know, Tom Drake at the, uh, the NSA. And we, we tell their stories in the book, but I guess I would just encourage people, um, you know, when you see somebody who's blowing the whistle, 
and the, you know, whatever you would call them, whoever's in power now, whatever media outlet is kind of telling you that, that they're against you. You know, anybody who's exposing more truth to the public is not against you. They're with you. So get on their side and help how you can. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't want to sound like I was condemning every single individual who's involved in this because there's definitely people who go in as true believers, right? There's people who really, who join up in like the FBI or the CIA or the army or whatever it is. And they have the best of intentions, you know, and they have the, they really believe that they're going to go in there and, and do good work to help good people. And, and some, you know, stay true believers. They, they're Mike Shores. They double down. They triple down. They fucking lose their minds in this mission, you know. <laughs> and and then there's and then there's people who get in there and they get they get asked to join the torture team, like John Kiriakou did, and they just go, I don't think I'm going to do that, you know. And they, you know, or you get people like Edward Snowden who go in like total believers, and then finally go like this this isn't right, you know. And so there are definitely. Good human beings, you know, who mean well, who, for you know, join for whatever reason, coming from wherever they come from in the world, and who, you know, some people's conscience says, like Bill Binney and Kurt Wiebe, and, um, that they, they just have to walk out, resign. And then there's people like Tom Drake who their conscience says, I'm going to try to fight it from the inside, and who ultimately get, you know, prosecuted or whatever. But, um, yeah. Good talk, well, Robbie. It's a little deeper than they go into on MSNBC. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think um, everybody out there listening to this episode of Media Roots Radio needs to get a copy of The Watchdogs in Bark. It's an amazing piece of work, um, and it's coming out on August the 28th. So it should be out a little after um, this podcast is released. And uh, is there anywhere specific online um that people listening can go to check out your work like youtube channel social media um to be honest i mean most of my <clears throat> most of my current projects are totally unrelated to the style of material um and are yeah are i've personally have i most of my work these days is in uh environmental issues and you know ecological concern is mostly where my heart is so most of my stuff's all about that now it's not really uh on this t this is like the one last this is my last stand with like the yeah 9-11 national security stuff so well, our listeners would be interested in that as well if you want to point to them to that um yeah i mean you could go i have uh i, I do keep a blog it's not for the faint of heart <laughs> it's uh but it's it's prayforcalamity.com and it's a uh, it's mostly just essay writing um, about sort of the current state of things and such like that. So they could check that out if they want to. Well, I'm actually, strangely enough, in the process of sort of closing my social media accounts. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to uh, have more real world <laughs> interactions, but, um, but you know what? Uh, we, we haven't, we, we bought the the site. We haven't gotten it up yet. This show will be good motivation. Uh, we bought watchdogsbark.com and, uh, and then you can go on uh, Twitter at watchdogsbark at watchdogs bark uh and there should be uh we should be able to direct people further from there if anyone wants to check us out there Fantastic. which I, I do hope to use because I, i'm sure like that inevitably the first edition of the book is going to have a handful of typographical errors or little little things and i don't want our entire reputations destroyed because of something like that so any errors or corrections will be updated in future editions of the book and we will make sure to put them as well as source materials on the website when we get to it 
<laughs> well, I didn't. Uh, I didn't find anything uh, when I was reading it, and um, I was reading the. I think the preprint edition. So it's uh, very, very well done. Um, and just hats off to you guys again for putting in so much uh, blood, sweat, and tears into this because I know you guys. You guys have been working on something like this for a very long time, and it's and it's a culmination of a lot of your past work too, which I think is is something I'm always very interested in seeing from people that I follow. And you built it off of so many years. Well, they backed um, a wheelbarrow full of uh, money, you know, just a dump truck of money up to our doors. We couldn't say no, Robbie. Had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're swimming in it now, now baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Thanks so well. much for coming on, Ray and John. And you guys take care. Thanks, Robbie. And say, t- uh, extend thanks to your sister as well. Just a little shout out here to all our Patreon donors. Thank you very much for all your support. If you haven't donated already, please consider donating at patreon.com/slash Media Roots Radio. You can donate as little as one dollar per episode. <laughs>